one prayer request, and that is that Carlos will be going in on Friday to uh, uh, take care of his foot and the challenges he's had with that thing, the ankle area. And I urge you to pray that everything will go very, very well and pray that uh, I won't have to go any further and won't be any other need of any other steps of surgery or whatever, infusions or whatever else involved, that he could get this thing settled so he could begin walking again and be mobile as he desires. So please on Friday between now and then, and especially then, that you pray for him that things will go well as he goes in to get this foot and ankle taken care of. So I'm uh, depending on you to pray for him. I hope you will. In uh, Exodus chapter number 3, we have uh, a story that um, is a continuation of what Moses did when uh, born in Egypt. His parents were slaves, Hebrew slaves, and um, he was born under the providence of God. He was born in a time where uh, the Israelites were multiplying. That is, their birth rate was higher than the birth rate of the Egyptians, and it was beginning to frighten the Pharaoh. And so the Pharaoh gave instructions, as you recall, that the midwives, when they go in to deliver, and by the way, these midwives were not Egyptian. These were Hebrew midwives. When they go in to take care of these Hebrew women when they were delivering child, children, that they were to kill the male children. And so the Hebrew midwives would indicate to the Pharaoh that by the time they got there, the words the midwives used were the Hebrew women were more lively and therefore their children were born quicker. And so they couldn't, they couldn't kill the baby, and implying they wouldn't kill the child after it was born. They would only kill it in some process of the birthing of the child. So the fact is, uh, obviously the case with Moses, he was born, and uh, he was hid uh, for a period of time by his parents so that Pharaoh and his soldiers or whoever it was went house to house to try to find the sons, uh, the Hebrew boys that were born that had not been killed. Uh, they went to find them and they were going to throw them into the River Nile. And their idea was twofold. One, to get rid of the Hebrews and two, they'd satisfy the Nile which they worship as productive and fruitful for the Egyptian people. They worship it to a degree. So the consequence of that was that Moses was spared. And not only was he spared, but Interestingly enough, Moses was snatched from the river's brink and put in that ark by his parents, watched by his sister, and then adopted, as it were, by the Pharaoh's daughter. You talk about the providence of God. Now he gets a, he gets a ringside seat to the Pharaoh of Egypt, who he one day will destroy. Now this particular Pharaoh will have died by the time he gets to do the work, but the Pharaoh that will be in power, when Moses comes back to deliver the Hebrew slaves, the very man, the very office that nurtured him and trained him and cared for him for 40 years, he will come back to destroy. I don't know how you get better with the providence of God. It doesn't work any better than that. So here you have in chapter 3, he started a little early in chapter 2 to destroy a, uh, um, an Egyptian and uh, as you know, then he came back the next day. The Egyptian was killing one of the Hebrews, and he stepped in and killed the Egyptian. And Acts chapter 7 tells us that Moses thought that Hebrews' slaves would understand that God had called him and commissioned him to deliver them. So it's quite obvious that Moses really believed that God had called him, and this is what he was supposed to do, deliver the Israelites. 
The problem was uh, Moses was doing it in his own strength. And God knew that ain't going to work because you're not going to be able to kill all the hundreds of thousands of the Egyptian soldiers and all the people who would rally to the uh, troop side. So it had to be a miraculous way. It had to be done from a divine perspective. And Moses didn't have that in understand. He didn't understand it. He didn't appropriate it. Uh, he was doing what he was doing in his own strength. So God says, that's not going to work. It's time for you to go to the backside of the desert. I'll work with you for 40 years. So he goes to the backside of the desert. That's where chapter 3 picks up, and he spends 40 years there. And in those 40 years, there's almost nothing said that's recorded in the Scripture of God talking to Moses. There's nothing. The first time God speaks, he speaks to him from a burning bush. And that's the first time in 40 years we hear any record of anything God said to Moses in those 40 years. Interestingly enough, that would have knocked all the idea that Moses could have done anything because God's not speaking. He's not reaffirming his commission. He's not telling him in that 40 years just to lay low, enjoy yourself, have a good time, have a good family, enjoy the sheep, and, uh, and just be a good sheep herder. It's just nothing. God didn't seem to speak. But Moses stays with the stuff and keeps at what he's doing. What's interesting in this, and it is, a, I think, a very interesting thing, is you read ahead, as you read through the chapters of Exodus and even get into the chapters, latter chapters of the Pentateuch, uh, you find it very clear that God made two promises uh, to the Hebrews that were enslaved in Egypt. He made this promise. He said that uh, as they cried out to him, he indicated, I will deliver you from bondage. In fact, we'll, uh, we'll check a few verses maybe before the service concludes to point that out more clearly. And then the second promise he made was that he had a land set aside for the children of Israel, and he called it a land that flowed with milk and honey. So God made two promises to the Israelites. One, I'll get you out of there. And two, I'll give you a land that's flowing with milk and honey. It's another way of saying it's a land that's prosperous so that you, as farmers, uh, you'll be able to go in there and you'll be able to utilize the, the fields and they'll produce for you and it'll be prosperous for you. That's what he's saying. So it wasn't just going to get him out of Egypt. He was going to get him into a land that uh, was at the moment preoccupied by the Canaanites, the Parasites, the Hittites. All of those people were already there. But the Lord said, don't worry about it. I'll take care of it. You just get out of Egypt, follow my man out of Egypt, I'll get you into the promised land. There's one thing that's interesting about that is that Moses was commissioned to accomplish only one of those things. And if ever you go look in the scriptures to find a place where God is, uh, is uh, omniscient, this is the one you'd look for because it comes very early. And that is that the Lord is commissioning in the, the chapter 3 when he speaks to Moses out of this burning bush, which we'll talk a little more about also, is that um, he just indicates to Moses, in fact, look at from verse number 4 of chapter 3, and when the Lord saw that, the, that he turned, that's Moses turned aside to see, that is the burning bush, God called unto him out of the midst of the bush. And he said, Moses... Moses, and he said, Here am I. And he said, Draw not nigh hither, put off thy shoes from off thy feet, for the place whereon thou standest is holy ground. And the reason was because God was there. Verse 6, Moreover, he said, I am the God of thy father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. And verse 7, The Lord said, I have surely 
seen the affliction of my people which are in Egypt and have heard their cry by reason of their taskmaster for I know their sorrows and I am come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out or up out of that land unto a good land and large unto a land flowing with milk and honey unto the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Parasites and the Hivites and the Jebusites now therefore behold the cry of the children of Israel is come unto me, and I have also seen the oppression wherewith the Egyptians oppressed them. Come now, therefore I will send thee unto Pharaoh, that thou mayest bring forth my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Notice, he does not say that I'm going to bring them out of Egypt by your hand, and I'm going to bring them into the promised land by your hand. didn't say that. He stopped short of saying, you bring them out, and then you can take them in. Why wouldn't he say that? Well, the Bible is very clear why he didn't say that. Look over to Deuteronomy. That's the fifth book of the law. And oh, by the way, Moses wrote these books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, and wrote it under inspiration. So you and I could have copies that are absolutely check preserved for you and me to read and have confidence in. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 32, and look down to verse number 48. And written by Moses' own hand, The Lord spake unto Moses that selfsame day, saying, Get thee up to this mount Abarim, unto the mount Nebo, which is in the land of Moab, that it is over against Jericho. And behold, the land of Canaan, which I give unto the children of Israel for possession. In verse 50, the only passage in the Bible where I ever found where God commanded a guy and told him to die. But it's written that way in verse 50. And he says, And die in the mount whither thou goest up, and be gathered unto thy people, as Aaron thy brother died in Mount Hor, and was gathered unto his people, verse 51, Because ye, trans ye trespassed against me among the children of Israel at the waters of the Meribah Kadesh in the wilderness of Zin. Because ye sanctified me not in the midst of the children of Israel, yet thou shalt see the land before thee, but thou shalt not go thither unto the land which I give the children of Israel. It amazes me and it, uh, it reaffirms my faith that in, when we read the scriptures that we don't read into it something that's not there. How many times I've heard preachers get up and say, you know, Moses would lead the children of Israel out of Egypt. And Moses was leading the children of Israel into the promised land. That's not true. God never intended Moses to get into the promised land by virtue that God knew ahead of time exactly what he would do. And when he wrote in the scriptures and exactly how and why he wouldn't get to go in, it seemed as if people were surprised and shocked. God wasn't. Oh, by the way, God knows your beginning to your end. He knows every up and every down that you've made. And He knows every, every single stumble you've had. He knows everything there is to know about you and me. The hair of your head is numbered. Beats of your heart He knows. He knows everything there is to know about us. 
And he's not going to write into his word something that is not going to be absolute and concrete. So when he writes Exodus chapter number 3 and verse number 10, Come now therefore, and I will send thee unto Pharaoh, that thou mayest bring forth my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. If the Lord had added and said, and he's going to lead them into the promised land, and then we come to Deuteronomy chapter number 32 and read verse 48 and following, and he didn't go in, we'd look at God and say, hey, 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 hey. You messed up. You don't know what's happening with your people. You don't understand. This guy sinned big time. He didn't honor you. He didn't sanctify you. He didn't lift up your name in front of those Israelites. He he was told to speak to the rock, and he struck that thing with that rod two times. I mean, how how flagrant could you be? Because that rod represented his authority, and what he did was is to say he made the rock give the water. And the Lord is saying, you didn't, you didn't honor me in front of the people. And um, Moses is fortunate that he didn't die on the spot. There was another guy, if you recall him. He's one of the Herods. He uh, gave not God the glory, one of the New Testament books tells us. And he was eaten of worms. The text would suggest that he was eaten of worms on the spot. Not that he fell over and got sick and died and the maggots that were born into his body by the bacteria, all that began to grow and move and he was eaten of worms after a bit. The indication of the text is it forthwith happened he was eaten of worms even as he was alive. It was all over for this guy. And the Bible gives a reason. Because he gave not God the glory. Let me tell you something. There's one thing about God that um, he's very sticky about. And one of those things is his glory. He'll share his glory with no man. And that's why it's dangerous, exceedingly dangerous, for any Christian who God is blessed with any ability to imply, suggest, or act like it's of his own doing. Whatever you have... You have because he provided you with it. If you happen to have money, you may have worked at it, but you'd have never gotten to where you are had he not given you the grace, the strength, and maintained your body so you could finish a task. If you have a talent, you, you didn't just get that. It wasn't because your parents were talented or your relatives were talented and somehow it passed through osmosis down to you and, and you've got talent and you can do great things for God. Uh, unless you are very careful and understand you got what you got because God has given it to you. Someday you may find yourself likewise eating the worms. Because God does not share his glory. In fact, the times in the scriptures that even Moses wanted to say, uh, show me your glory. Show me your glory. The Lord said, I'll show you. Here's how it works. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to walk through here, and I'm going to put my hand over here, and I want you to stand out of sight for me. And so when I pass by, you can see my hinder parts, but you cannot see my face. And the Bible indicates that is exactly what Moses did. He wanted to see the glory of God. He didn't ask for it to take it. He just wanted to see it. But when he stood before the rock of Meribah, Kadesh, it was an amazing thing. He strikes that rock out of disrespect for the very authority to which he led the Israelites, as if to say, 
I can get water out of this rock. Look at this. Wham! Wham! And as if God was doing something gracious to him, he let the water flow. But he never forgot. And the day came when the Lord said, Moses, look, you're going to lead them out of Egypt and you'll get them through the wilderness and we'll get you over to the other side up to a point where you can look over and see it. But you're not going in. And by the way, that's the reason that Aaron didn't go in because Aaron stood right beside Moses when Moses struck that rock. He was the high priest. And if the leader of the tribe, as in the case with Moses, didn't do it right, the high priest had honor to say, ho, 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 ho. Don't strike the rock. God said, speak to the rock. It's like a, a preacher. The good news is when uh, Nathan, the prophet, stood in the chamber of the king, when King David had sinned so profusely, God had Nathan, the prophet, there. And even as the king was doing wrong and trying to cover his sin, Nathan, the prophet, spoke up to the king and said, Thou art the man. David gave this illustration about a, a, a precious lamb. Of the Nathan explained it, and David bought it and said, Yes, I understand. That guy needs to pay the price. And this guy, is, is, and in fact, it's an awful thing, and this guy will pay the price for that. And Nathan speaks up as a prophet, as Aaron should have spoken, spoken up for Moses. And he said, Thou art the man. That's what prophets did in the Old Testament. That's what preachers ought to do today. Preachers let too much stuff go by that they should stand up against. And when things go contrary to what the Bible teaches in our community, it ought to be preachers standing up. It ought not have to be politicians and people who've run for office. It ought to be preachers saying, this is right. The Bible says this and we're doing that way and, and this other way that God has set forth in His work would be better for everybody. Everybody would be better off if we did it this way. Oh, I realize, you know, we're not talking about dominion theology here. We're not talking about that we operate a society under every single thing written in the Scriptures. But there are some things that work for the lost as well as they do for the saved. And the truth about that matter is there's some things that are set forth in the Scripture that would fit well into our society to help us do it better. So in the case with Moses, he's, uh, he's keenly aware that um, getting this thing settled and getting it before the Lord, knowing what his job is going to be now, as I mentioned to you the last time we were together, uh, notice, if you would, there are three times when I have found in the Scripture that have stood out to me, and I referred to them a bit last time we were together. Let me repeat them for a moment, if I may. And that is the business of uh, standing still and seeing the Lord. Remember, from where you are in Exodus chapter 3, look over to Exodus chapter 14. We mentioned this one already, so I won't be elaborating on it. In chapter 14, and uh, Moses is with the Israelites, and the Egyptians are pursuing them to kill them. In Exodus 14 and verse 13, uh, the children of Israel are very upset, and um, he, they claim that Moses has taken them out of Egypt. And uh, they're facing a dead end. And he says, you've taken us away to die in the wilderness in verse 11. And then verse 13, Moses said unto the people, fear ye not, stand still, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will show to you today. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today, ye shall see them again no more forever. The fact is that uh, all they were urged to do through Moses and, and his declaration was to stand still and see what God can do. There's a biblical application of that for the New Testament salvation. And that is that there are so many people got this idea that you've got to help God out. And uh, we talk about it by the menu of work salvation. 
reminding ourselves it's not by works of righteousness which we have done. It's according to His mercy that He saves us. In other words, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. What you have to face is your problem. The Israelites faced a whole tribe of soldiers from the Egyptians' camp and their, their whole empire. It seems as if they just was crawling with the Egyptian soldiers and they were all marching toward the Red Sea and the Israelites were facing the Red Sea on one side and the soldiers of Egypt on the other side. They were at a dead end. They were hopelessly gone. And Moses says, stand still. Don't rush to do anything. Don't pick up all the stones you can so we can throw them at the Egyptian soldiers. He never said anything. He just said, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. That's exactly where every sinner has to come to is a dead end. When a sinner gets to the point he realizes he cannot save himself and there's no fire escape and there's no exit door and he has nowhere to turn, he's hopelessly lost, he's hopelessly doomed. It's at that point that he's about ready to be saved. It's like rescuing the perishing of somebody drowning. We don't rush in when somebody is flaying with his hands and his feet and he's kicking and he's screaming and so forth. No lifeguard jumps in the water to save a person like that. Training is very successfully specific. Wait till he stops fighting. When he stops fighting, be still and rescue him. May I say to you, it's the same thing about the gospel. As long as man thinks he has a hope, He'll try it. And as long as he keeps trying, he can't trust. And if he's not trusting Christ, he cannot be saved. So the fact is, this is one of those Old Testament settings and circumstances that reflect a New Testament truth. Also, we talked about, look if you would, to Psalm 46. Psalm 46. And remember, this is a psalm I made mention about Shakespeare. And uh, this is one of those psalms that much is mentioned of that. But in Psalm 46, look at verse number 10. In Psalm 46, verse 10, this verse uses the same statement, be still. But this time it's not uh, stand still and see. This time it's be still and know that I am God. And I will be exalted among the heathen and I will be exalted in the earth. What's important about this one is, is after you've been saved or salvaged by being still and seeing the salvation of the Lord, the next thing is for you to get to know God and to get to know Him well. And uh, in this particular case, it's uh, uh, one of those uh, psalms that is, is written with a lot of application. This particular one is that was trying to tell the Israelites that uh, uh, there is really no other way to get to know God except accepting and and standing on, as we call the promises of God, standing on what God had done to reveal himself. That's what the psalm is really saying. It's a a matter of saying, look, uh, you, you think about what God has done. Think of all his works and his wondrous works that he's accomplished. And that was a carryover for these people to get to know God to a point where they could trust him. And by the way, that's how the Old Testament people learned especially to trust him, even before there was a written, recorded word, there was the word of the prophets or the word of the priest who told them what God said. And they banked everything on that. They trusted him. And then when God showed himself strong by these works, their faith increased. They had confidence. They believed him. They understood what he could do. Well, in our case, he's done the greatest work of all when he saved us from our sin. 
So when we stood still and saw, you and saw the salvation of the Lord, that's the greatest work that God has ever done. Parting the Red Sea is one thing that would be simple for God. Hard for you and I. It was tough on Steven Spielberg when he made the film and created that dry ground across what appeared to be a great sea, the Red Sea. It was tough for him to pull that off, and he'd be glad to tell you that. But the fact of the matter is, that's a walk in the park for the God who created the heavens and the earth and all that in it is. If God can create all this universe and all the planets that are out there in space, and he can put in laws by which they obey so they don't bump into each other as they make rotation, parting the Red Sea and letting the Israelites walk across on a path of dry ground is a walk in the park. But saving your soul and mine was a major matter. In the context of the story about the Red Sea crossing, it didn't cost a single Israelite his life. Not a single one. Nobody had to die to get the Israelites to go across on dry ground. But all the Egyptian soldiers died, every one of them. But when our salvation came up, it not only had to be a sacrifice, it had to be a perfect sacrifice. And as the book of Revelation talks in time to come, when they talk about opening the books of God, and the people cried and say, there's nobody found worthy. Nobody is worthy enough to open the book. That's how it was about salvation. God looked through the quarters of heaven, one Negro preacher said, and he could find nobody who would fit the bill, the criteria, the character of a sinless individual, even sinless enough, even in the quarters of heaven. And so God called forth his son and said, The spotless son of God, God of very God, must go down and die on the cross for man's to be saved from his sin. Now the truth of the matter is, that's standing still and getting to know God in salvation, but it's also getting to know God where you can trust him with everyday living and everyday life. Let me take you to one more. Look, if you would, in Job chapter 37. Job chapter 37, look down to verse number 14. Job chapter 37. It's, this is a case of... Uh, of um, Job's talking about it with his friends and why he was talking and then it, it runs into the explanation about all that's happened to him. But in Job 37 verse 14, one of those say to him thus, he says, Hearken unto this, O Job, stand still and consider the wondrous works of God. In the verse before that said, He causeth it to come whether for correction or for his land or for mercy. These uh, friends of Job uh, had the idea that Job had sinned big time. And Job wouldn't be in the trouble he's in if he had uh, simply acknowledged his sin. If he just said, look, I have sinned and God has brought all of this upon me for this. But what his friends did not know is what is written in the book of Job that um, Job was a just man, perfect, upright. He was a man that did not harbor sin, and he had not sinned, and that's not why this came on him. In fact, you could almost make the case that it was because he had not sinned that this came upon him. 
Because Satan saw him and said, hey, got this class A servant down there named Job, and this guy, I've worked with him, and I've tempted him, and I've worked on his life, and I can't get the guy to do anything, but you just take your hands off of him, and you remove the hedge of protection that you put about him, and you let me work with him, I will get him to curse you to your face. And uh, the Lord gives him permission. He goes down, he works on Job, and that doesn't work. He comes back later, and he said, look, what it is, he knows I can't kill him. You take off your hand, you let me do anything to him, and he'll curse you to your face. The Lord said, okay, you can do everything but kill him. You can afflict him. You can uh, you can make him miserable. Take away all the comforts he has. You can take all the relationships away from him. Do everything you need to. Just whatever you need to do, do it, but he won't curse me. You see, let me remind you of something. God knows what you're made of because he made you. Oh, you'll do the things that your emotions and your social connections will create um, context for you to do things that God would not necessarily approve, but God still knows what you're going to do, just like he knew what Moses was going to do. It was no surprise when Moses struck the rock to God. Disappointment? No, not really, because you really can't disappoint somebody who already knows everything is going to happen. There's no such thing as disappointment. So in that context, it's the same way with Job. And Job's being encouraged and exhorted here in this particular case to hearken unto this old Job and stand still and consider the wondrous works of God. He's trying to get him to admit that he's sinned. There's a there's a, uh, a truth about that that I, I think is worthy of uh, all of our considerations, and that is... Uh, to understand that when God was working with uh, Moses back over here in Genesis chapter number 3, he was grooming him for what he had to plan for him. And uh, all of us are in one position or another being groomed for whatever God's got planned for us. And um, in some cases it takes our whole lifetime uh, to get ready to be used for what we need to be used for. And I say to you that in our society, we're in a hurry up and be busy kind of mindset. And it's um, it's difficult for God's people to really get to know God really, really well. There's a song, and uh, Daniel brought it to my attention last week. It's uh, a song written by uh, John Randall Davis and uh, by uh, John Moore. Last name Moore spelt M-O-H-R. But uh, it's called The Refiner's Fire. And... Um, this, uh, I think, fits well what God was doing with Moses as um, things began, began to happen in Moses' life, as we'll get to know in the next weeks and, and sometime in the future. I hope we'll come to appreciate them more. But here's uh, the gist of this song, and let me read the words to you. You can get a, uh, get a picture of it, but I would tell you up front, most of us in this room will know nothing about this. We won't understand it at all. Because what this is, is is in that crucible of God's work on us to get us ready to do what He wants us to do. We don't like pain, discomfort, and we don't like the things that sometimes God uses to get us usable. So the song is built on the premise of that, and here's what it says. There burns a fire with sacred heat, white hot with holy flame. And all who dare pass through its blaze will not 
emerge the same. Some as bronze and some as silver. Some as gold, then with great skill. All are hammered by their sufferings on the anvil of his will. The chorus goes, the refiner's fire has now become my soul's desire. Purged and cleansed and purified that the Lord be glorified. Now stop right there in the chorus. There's four more lines to it. But let me just stop and ask you a sobering question. Would you be willing to suffer for God to be glorified? If God were to say to you tonight, Rick, here's what I'm going to do. This will glorify me, and I want you to cooperate with me. I'm going to cause you great distress. I'm going to bring into your life something that's going to be both painful and problematic. But I remind you, it'll be great glory for me as you go through this. And the assumption of that is that you go through it without complaining. You don't mumble and grumble and growl and, and, and you recognize and you verbally acknowledge that the Lord allowed this with purposes that could bring honor and glory to Him. So therefore, Rick, I don't want you to grumble about it. I don't want you to complain about it. I don't want you to, to murmur under your breath. I don't want you to have a wrong spirit about it. I want you to simply repeat to yourself and mean it from the depths of your heart. To God be all the glory. Now, would you be willing, if we laid up a piece of paper here at the front, and we were going to get signatures on it and lay it before the Lord as we dedicated families this morning and babies to the Lord, that they live for the Lord to His glory. We said tonight we're going to take this list and we're going to sign it, those of us who are willing to suffer that God might be glorified, and we're going to dedicate this list to Him and just tell Him, you do with us on this list whatever would bring you glory, whatever the price might be. Would you sign the paper? Now think it through carefully. Because there are people who uh, basically did that without knowing what it would do in production. They didn't know it would bring glory to God. They, they just were put into a, a crucible whereby they wonder uh, great pain and discomfort and a burden and it didn't look like a blessing was anywhere in the neighborhood. And yet somehow God got glory from it. The rest of the Course says, He is consuming my soul, refining me, making me whole. No matter what I may lose, I choose the refiner's fire. The second verse of the song says, I'm learning now to trust His touch, to crave the fire's embrace. For though my past with sin was etched, his mercies did erase. Each time his purging cleanses deeper, I'm not sure that I'll survive. Yet the strength in growing weeper keeps my hungry soul alive. Now these fellows who wrote this song, 
If those men were sincere by writing this from the depths of their heart, based on what the Bible has taught others concerning their suffering and pain and discomfort, all to the glory of God, I would tell you these, uh, these men have a pretty good insight to what God really wants of us, though he does not ask all of us to pay this kind of price. There are some people who have served the Lord for years and been pretty prosperous in it, accomplished much for the Lord's glory, that have not had to go through these deep valleys of purging and cleansing, but there are others who have. And some had to give everything up, everything up. And some even lost their lives for the glory of God. I'm thinking of men uh, who worked in this country sharing the gospel. David Brainerd is one of them. Very faithful servant to the Indians. Died at a very early age. And almost died without anybody knowing about him. You know, one of those kind of things. People around where he ministered and whatever, they knew of him. They knew of his faithfulness, his diligence, his dedication. But they also recognized that he was tireless in giving himself to share the gospel and get the word out to those Indians. And yet he paid a terrible price. Terrible price. And the list is so long, it would uh, take a long time in a sermon in a service like this to explain all that. But maybe say this to you. When you read the story of Moses, you'll see a man who the Lord did not use such crucible of pain and agony and discomfort to get ready. But the truth of the matter is, the Lord will bring in things to his life to make him more sure of his confidence in God and less of the confidence in himself. It's almost the fact he, he hardly gets started, and, and we'll close with this, he hardly gets started on his journey to go back to Egypt until he almost died. Almost died. Would have died if his wife had not circumcised one of the boys and cast the foreskin that she cut off at Moses' feet it seems very evident that the Lord would have killed him. And I think that's very obvious to say that this one thing about the circumcision that was going to be an identifying marker for the Israelites along the way and eventually that which would identify them as a covenant people, all of that was involved in this thing and Moses had not even operated it in his own family, had not led his own family to do the thing that would set them apart and identify them as God's people. God would have no part of it. So God brought him within just a hair of killing him for a simple disobedience. But God is not through with him. God has a plan for him, and God's going to use him, and God's not, uh, God's not uh, mean and ugly. God is just demanding a strict obedience to his word, and that hasn't changed. God gives us his word that we may know it, and he gives us his spirit that we might obey it. And I say to you that in reading about Moses, I hope you'll come to understand and appreciate. Here's a man who was uh, uh, brought up and brought about in the providence of God in the time that he was born when the Pharaoh was killing the male children of the Hebrews. He was groomed in the palace of the Pharaoh and someday would come back to the Pharaoh's palace and present a very stern message brought from God himself. Let my people go. Sometimes it costs you something. It's going to be 80 years of Moses' life when he shows up. In fact, it'll be working on his next 40 years when he shows up at the Pharaoh's court. 
He spent 40 years in the palace and he spends 40 years on the backside of the desert and he comes back to Egypt to get the Israelites out. It seems strange, but um, God only knows what he did with Moses in that 40 years on the backside of the desert and why it is that uh, we don't know anything about it. As I told some of the men, it's a very simple answer. If God was so interested in us learning about Moses' life, why did not he write something about that 40 years back there? Very simple reason. And when you think about it, as I think I and a lot of others thought about it, it's very simple. If God had given us the curriculum by which he worked with Moses' life, then we would think that God would work with all of us the same way, using the same curriculum. But we're all different. So God would say to you and say to me, I work with Moses as I knew Moses' heart and I knew his strengths and his weaknesses and I knew what I had to do to deal with him to bring him to a point where he would absolutely unequivocally trust me and follow my commands. He might have to work with you differently and he'd have to work with me differently and so he doesn't write a word about it, how he deals with his servant. That's private and that's personal with God. The good news about that is we're not cookie-cutter creations. We are a people with distinctions, and he's brought us into this world that way, and he will treat us that way by teaching us individually, separately from a conglomerate kind of instructional course, and get us ready for the service he has us for, and he did that with Moses. Next week we're together, we'll take it a step further and see exactly how he carries that out. I hope you'll be with us. For now, let me challenge you with one thing. Just know this that um, in serving the Lord and serving Him, I'm talking about uh, yielding your life to fit His plan. I'd simply say to you, be careful that you're not running the show. I personally think that's why that Moses had to flee and was not permitted by God to stay in Egypt and begin to formulate what God had a plan for him. I believe that God worked his plan and got him a wife and had children and he got to work on the backside of the desert for Jethro and Ruel and all the sheep keeping and learning to uh, how to operate with the leadership of a flock of sheep. I'm, I'm sure God used all that. But I'm not so sure that God could have started right where he left him had Moses bowed and bent to the will of the Lord rather than saying, Here's how I'm going to handle this. As Christians today, you have to be careful not to assume too much to do it your way, but rather with every decision that affects your life, it ought to be, first of all, the bending of your knee and the bowing of your heart and saying, is this what you want me to do? What Shelton wrote years ago in that book, In His Steps, is not something that I think should be taken very lightly. I think it has a principle that is carried out throughout of the scriptures, and I believe God's people need to think and take serious looks at it, and that is to ask yourself, every decision you come up with that has to do with your life and your family's life, what would Jesus do? What would he have me to do? What is it that I should do at this point? How should I carry myself? What decision should I make, and what direction should it take me? And how is it that I'm going to take this decision and make sure that it bends to the glory of God. After all, that's what God's looking for. Does Rick Henry bring glory to me or glory to himself, advance his own plans, or does he advance mine? I hope that you'll take to heart that um, as surely as he knew what was going on in Egypt when the Israelites were crying out to him, he said he knew their affliction. 
He said he knew their sorrows and he heard their cries. You think he doesn't know what you're up to? You think he doesn't understand what you're doing? You think he doesn't understand what you're thinking? Plans you're laying? Schedule you're keeping? You think he doesn't know? I'll assure you that he does. And he's looking for your plans and mine to match his. Match his. He won't he doesn't want your plans be this and his be that and then be offset. That's not what he wants. He wants your plans to bend and bow to his. So I say to you, take heed and be warned. God is watching, God is listening, and God knows. Make sure your life matches up with his plan. And then you serve him. Cast throw everything that you've got in talent and ability and skill into bringing honor and glory to him. And don't take any of the glory for what you get to do. Let's stand together. We'll have a word of prayer and you'll be heading home. Thank you for listening. May the Lord give you a great week. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the privilege you've given us today here at the New Life Baptist Church to be in the services. and Thank you for the measure of health we enjoy that makes that possible. We thank you and praise you for that. And we thank you for Moses and for this good man and how you used him and worked in his life. And Father, I thank you that there are characteristics about his life that remind all of us of our own. Things that he did that he shouldn't have done, some things he did that we wish we could. And Father, in the end, you used him in a wonderful way, and yet he was an honest man. And when he wrote those first five books of the Bible, he didn't spare to talk about his own failures and his own mistakes. He didn't weed out the texts of Scripture that tell about his own sin and his disobedience to you in striking the rock. Nor did he cop out when it came to telling exactly the story about the Lord telling him to go up to the mountain, look over to see what was in the promised land, but telling him to go up there and die because he had sinned against him in not sanctifying the Lord God. So tonight as we leave here, I pray you'll remind us that in all we do, we need to sanctify the Lord. We need to make it very clear that anything that's good in our lives, he has done. It's not possible that in ourselves we would do good. There's none that do good even as lost people, but technically there's none good among God's people that have not been dealt with by the grace of God and the Spirit of God. And the credit for good in us is to be laid at the Holy Spirit's feet. And therefore tonight I pray that you'll help none of us at the New Life Baptist Church to steal your glory. Help us to be bold and brave to give you the glory for every aspect of our life. And thank you for the privilege we have of serving you, even if it costs us something. In some cases, it may cost us a lot. But help us to be willing to die to self, to be alive to Christ in service to Him, in ways that might affect the world and pleasing Him. Thank you for our people and our guests and their coming to a Sunday night service. And I pray you'll bless them. Give them a good rest tonight. Safety in getting home, good rest, and a good week. And I pray you'll show them favor for your own honor and your glory. And I pray you'll use us that we might share the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. May the Lord bless you and keep you until we meet again. You're dismissed. Thank you.